I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm so excited to discuss my sponsor today, which is Page One Books, because my summer book bundle is ready on pageonebooks.com. And the bundle that I've put together includes three books that I picked, uh, Montauk by Nicola Harrison, More Myself by Alicia Keys, and I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot, all of which have been on this podcast here. Uh, it includes a Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Beach Tote, a cute little library card pencil slash cosmetic case, and a water bottle for staying hydrated, plus a little... Um, thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com, page one with the number one. So page number one books.com and check out my page one books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, a housewarming, if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page one books.com. Welcome to day four of my July book blast. Today, I'm going to be calling this Thrilling Thursday, and there are a bunch of thrillers and suspenseful reads that I thought you'd really enjoy and that would make great summer reads. A lot of these came out during the pandemic, and they're really worth your time, so I wanted to get them out. I hope you enjoy them. Stephanie Story's debut novel, Oil and Marble, was hailed as tremendously entertaining by the New York Times, has been translated into six languages, and is currently in development as a feature film by Pioneer Pictures. Story is also the author of Raphael, Painter in Rome, and has a degree in fine arts from Vanderbilt University and attended a PhD program in art history before leaving to get an MFA in creative writing from Emerson College. She has studied art in Italy and been on a pilgrimage to see every Michelangelo on display in Europe. Stephanie has also been a national television producer for nearly 20 years in LA for shows including Alec Baldwin on ABC, Arsenio Hall for CBS, and Emmy-nominated The Writer's Room on the Sundance Channel. When not writing novels or producing television, Story can usually be found with her husband, Mike Gandolfini, an actor and Emmy-winning comedy writer, traveling the world in search of their next stories. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Even in the middle of all of the crazy world we have going on outside of our doors, I appreciate having any opportunity to talk about books and getting a little bit of an escape for a moment. I Yes, I'm happy to provide the, <laughs> the forum for that. So you have such an interesting background. You wrote, your first book was Oil and Marble, which took the world by storm and is now becoming a feature film. Is that right? Is that still happening? It is still happening. The Pioneer Pictures is making the movie. They're a great group of guys. I believe they have just sort of finished up getting the screenplay solid. So now they are going out and attaching other elements and still hoping to plan on shooting in Italy once all of this closes down. So there will be news forthcoming on that. But the movie making process is slow. So yes, I'm I'm acquainted with that a little bit. <laughs> How nice does filming in Italy sound? Just uh, even the idea of being able to travel. I mean, Right. I know that's uh, the least of it these days, but just, you know, the ability to to be in other parts of the world. <laughs> just the ability to think about going back to Italy soothes me in some manner to think about being able to head back to Rome or head back to Florence or just do something that feels a little bit more global than being sheltered in place in a house right now, which I understand is important and I'm all for it, but it is nice to be able to dream of going back to Italy at some point. Yeah, filming there would be amazing. 
Oh my gosh. I was looking at this picture. I have this photo of like a pier with like the Mediterranean Sea around it and like all these people. And there's like this one woman who's like walking down. And I did this like, I don't even know what it was. Like (laughs) mindfulness. I don't know what it was, but I was like, I'm going to imagine that I'm her and I can like hear the sounds and smell the water and like pretend that I am there because instead I am in my same place that I've been now for, I don't know, weeks and weeks and weeks. So anyway, it helped. It helped. And then imagine yourself going and eating pizza or some pesto or something like that would be really nice. But anyway. Well, I feel like you're going to get to Italy before me. So you are now required to like send me some pictures or some footage of that trip because I am like craving that experience. (laughs) Okay, so you have Oil and Marble and now you have a new book, a new art historical thriller coming out. Tell me about that. I see it. I see it behind you. <laughs> it is. Yes. <laughs> it is behind me. Not that anybody else can see it. That's right here. Not that you can see. Sorry, we're on Skype. But it came out on April 7th. So it just came out. So Oil and Marble was about the rivalry between Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci when they were both living in Florence. At the end of that book, this is not really a spoiler because it doesn't really give much away. But at the end of that book, a guy by the name of Raphael shows up on the scene. And so my newest book, sort of in a way picks up where Oil and Marble left off, although it's very different. We follow Raphael down to Rome, where he then engages in this high stakes rivalry with Michelangelo. So while Michelangelo was painting the Sistine ceiling, Raphael is just down the hall decorating the Pope's private apartments. But this newest novel is written in first person from Raphael's point of view. So you only get this sort of this big rivalry between these two huge artists from the eyes of Raphael, you only see Michelangelo through the eyes of Raphael. He's like sitting across a tavern table from you, the reader, telling you this story of how he engaged in this huge rivalry with Michelangelo and the story and and how Michelangelo does create the Sistine ceiling during that and how Raphael deals with his rival doing such amazing things on a ceiling and how he counters that. So. I mean, these days, like someone's rival might get like, I don't know, more likes on Instagram. These days they're painting, the, like then they're painting the Sistine Chapel. You know what I mean? Like things are so much more impressive. <laughs> right, the Sistine Chapel. And then and then Raphael, it's so funny because I've been talking to book clubs and people who have already read Raphael. And they're like, oh, well, I went to the Vatican to go see the Sistine, but I don't remember seeing Raphael's rooms, the Pope's private apartments. I don't know if I went through them. I'm like, oh no, you have to walk through them in order to get to the Sistine. The Vatican forces you to walk through the Raphael rooms and they are gorgeous. They are little jewel boxes of rooms of these amazing masterpieces. But people are so focused, I think, or at least Americans are so focused on seeing the Sistine that they forget and they don't stop and pay attention to this other amazing art. So I'm hoping that my book can do a little bit towards reviving Raphael. He was the most famous of the three of, of, of Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael during his lifetime. He was the most beloved. He was the one that everybody held up at this, as this perfect painter. And this year was the 500th anniversary of his death. So it was supposed to be this huge global celebration going on of Raphael's life. And this huge exhibit in Rome got shut down days after it opened. And I was like heartbroken (laughs) for Raphael, not for me, for him. I was like, this was supposed to be your moment. Yeah, so I guess that's why I wrote it, because I get all flustered and weird when I talk about (laughs) how, how we're missing out on Raphael's art and his brilliance and how we need to go back and reconnect to it because he was a nice guy. So he gets left out of 
out of the history too much, right? Like people go, oh, he was so nice, so generous, so humble. He's not interesting. No, he's really interesting. Trust me. <laughs> so you have a PhD in art history. No, you don't. You don't. I went to a PhD program. Okay. I attended one. I did not finish because academics do not like it when you make stuff up. So, <laughs> so then I you switched left. to your MFA because I was like, then how did I went she to go do all MFA. of these things. <laughs> I'm well, old. I don't know. I'm, I'm 45 now. So my first book came out when I was 40. So I'd already had time to go to a PhD program, drop out, go get my MFA, move to Hollywood, produce a bunch of television and then come out with a book. So I don't know. It's just, it's an obsession. I'm obsessed. But you can tell like the passion in your voice. Like now I all of a sudden care about Raphael. Like I was just going about my business, not really, you know, I thought I had enough of a, of a impression of what he was like before, but now I have to revisit the whole thing. No, you have to. That's the point. Since he got he got left out. Now he's just a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Exactly. I'm like, oh, come on. It's oh my so gosh. much more than that. Wait, but back up a little bit. How did you go from, so you were a TV producer also for a long time before this. So how did you decide to sort of quit your day job and pursue fiction writing? I have written novels since I was, or books, fiction, since I was seven years old. Like I wrote my first Hordy the Hog goes to school when I was seven. And I've been, so I've written fiction every day since. But everybody told me that's not a real gig, even though I have my MFA in creative writing. So I moved down to Hollywood because I heard there was this business where people told stories and it was an actual industry where you could <laughs> get a job and make money. So I did. It was, however, Hollywood was my total plan B. It was like, I'm only doing this until I get a novel. <laughs> I don't know. So I went out there and I produced primarily news and talk television. So Candace Bergen had a talk show and Carrie Fisher had a talk show. Governor Jesse Ventura, Tavis Smiley, Arsenio Hall's relaunched to CBS. Alec Baldwin just had a talk show a couple years ago on ABC that I produced. And I did that forever while in the mornings and at nights and on weekends. I was writing screenplays for a while with my husband. And then I have one of those moments in 2011 where you realize life is really short and it's not going to last forever. So you better do what you really want to do. And I was terrified of writing a novel. I thought, oh man, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm only good enough to like write a screenplay and television? Like I'm not good enough to write a novel, but I really wanted to. And I really wanted to tell the oil and marble story, the Michelangelo versus Leonardo story. So I just sort of bucked up and did it in 2011. So I was 36 when I started, when I really sort of said, I'm not just going to write fiction for myself. I'm going to try to, I had seven novels or something in a filing cabinet by that point that we're never going to see the light of day, you know? And this was the first time when I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to make one good enough to get it published and, and send it out into the world. So I don't know. And then I sold it. So then we sold, my husband and I sold our condo and went on book tour because I thought, well, that'll take three months. We don't need to pay the mortgage and the Marriott too. And up until this pandemic, we were still traveling full time with gigs and writing events and speaking events. And so I don't know how it happened. I just looked up and went, I guess I have a noveling career now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's really impressive. So essentially you're homeless. You've just been bouncing from one place to another. I do. I am very lucky. My parents have property on a lake in Arkansas and they have a guest house. So whenever we need to stop down and do some laundry or have a home cooked meal, we stop in at the guest house 
And then we leave again for the Marriott, although this is we, we are sheltering in place by Lake in Arkansas, which has turned out to be great. We're away from humanity. I only go to the grocery store and it's a quiet place to write my next novel. So, Wow. What's your next novel about? All I am saying about it at this point is it's still art historical fiction because I hope to be writing that to the day I die. Like Michelangelo, Michelangelo was still carving the week before he died when he was 88 years old. He was still carving marble. Come on. And Raphael dies when he's 37. So he's still like painting his greatest masterpiece like two days before he dies. Anyway, so I hope to be doing that, art historical fiction. But the new one is leaving the Italian Renaissance for now. Not that I won't be back, but I have other eras of art history that fascinate me. So I'm leaving both era and I'm leaving the country. I'm leaving Italy to go to a different country too. Mm-hmm. But that's about all I'm saying about it. I mean, unless you follow my social media, in case you might be able to figure out what country I've been obsessed with lately. So I'll, that's, go, that's, I'll go back and do some detective work. <laughs> <laughs> what happened in 2011? What, what happened that made you rethink your life and decide that now is the moment? My husband had a stroke and he was 49 years old and oh. we were in a hospital and I thought, and he's the healthiest guy I know. He was a vegetarian. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He runs every day. He does yoga. Like, he is literally the healthiest guy I know. And I'm sitting there, and at the time, I'm, you know, 36. And I'm going, this is crazy. How can the healthiest guy I know have had this big of an event? And we didn't know at the time when I'm sitting in the hospital room. He's fully recovered now. Now you'd never know. But at the time, you're like, oh, this is bad we're in for physical therapy and we're in for a long journey and I don't know how he's going to be. And it just, the beeping machine, I could still just back there, you know, the beeping machines and the, in that moment you go, well, this isn't, this isn't going to last forever. If this can happen to my husband, it can happen to me. He's healthier than I am. You know, how did the stroke present itself? How did you even know it was happening? It turned out it already had a smaller one earlier in the year, which we didn't identify he just like started walking like a drunk cartoon character. And we were like, well, that's weird. But the, the morning of, I had already gone to work. I was producing television. So I was up really early in the morning. And I got a phone call at my office phone from a neighbor saying, hey, I'm with your husband. He's asking you to come home. And he gives the phone to my husband. And my husband says, come home. Something's happened. I don't know what. So I get home. And I'm like, this is, I don't know what's happening. He just, he, he woke up and his arm flew up in the air without him doing it. And then he couldn't dial the phone himself. He was sort of confused. We go to the hospital. It's a very long story. I'm going to make it very short. We go to the hospital and they run some tests. They do not run an MRI. So they send us home telling him he's dehydrated. That was at nine o'clock in the morning. And that night he kept getting worse, but they had sent us home. They told us he was okay. So I just wanted to get him to bed. Went to a friend's house for dinner. And he can't, he's not talking right. Like something's not right. And then he woke up in the middle of the night. He was choking. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, and I went, what? And he said, what he thought he was saying is I just sneezed. So I got up and raced him back to the hospital. And by that point, it was obvious. His whole left side was flat. He couldn't move his arm. He couldn't walk. Like by that point, it was beyond anything I would have. And there was no doubt once you get back to the hospital then. And then the hospital goes, oh my gosh, we sent him home. Yeah. I don't usually tell that story. You're very good. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> I didn't mean to pry into your life. I'm sorry. I'm just you so didn't. interested. I'm sorry. I- no, no, I don't. I, I'm, it's not about, it's not something I keep that I don't share. I just don't usually talk about it. So it's interesting that I did in this scenario. Thank you for talking about it. I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's a lot. I mean, that's terrifying. And oh my gosh, that's a lot to handle. And I see why it made you sort of pivot in the rest of your life, right? I mean, that is like when when someone you love goes through something like that, there's everything changes. That's it. Well, and you're so helpless, right? You're so, you can't do anything to help. And all you can do is sit there and go, well, I can help him recover. And then I can re-examine my life and say, what's actually important to me and what's actually important to him and what's actually important to us as a married couple. How do we navigate forward to try to make the best of the life that we have? I don't know. I guess for me, that meant writing about 500-year-old dead artists. (laughs) (laughs) I might not pick the same sort of, you know... (laughs) item in the toolbox, but to each his own. (laughs) It's a weird choice, but I guess that's what came up because that's what I've done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, clearly there's like how great that there's a demand for it too. I mean, it's also so unique. I'm sure that's what drew publishers to it, right? Like, and your passion for it. I know I already said this, but I mean, this is like intense love of these artists and this time period. I mean, I took art history every semester of college and I like to think that I like really do care about art and I'm interested and I like the backstory, but I am like, you know, nothing. (laughs) This is like a whole new world. (laughs) I just, I just care so much that they're real people. That's what bothers me is people walk into museums and they look at these artists as though they're just up on these pedestals and they're just they're untouchable, right? Mm-hmm. They're not like you and me. They're these geniuses who fell from earth to create these pieces of art that changed the world. And that's BS. Yeah. They are real people who faced real struggles and really fought hard for the work that they created. And so I think those are the stories that I'm trying to tell is that story of creativity and fighting for creativity is part of humanity. And I, I think that's what that and, and and in addition to writing about art and humanity, I also throw in a lot of fires and floods and 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 dramatic murders and all kinds of fun <laughs> things because it's a book. And and this period of history is full of that stuff. You know, it's full of popes poisoning other popes and dukes killing cardinals and and it's just full of fires and floods and all kinds of exciting <laughs> things. So you might as well throw them in. So I, I think that's the other thing is I try not to make my art history like you had it in your art history class where you just look at a slide and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the name and the date and mm-hmm. the and the title and the artist's name. And then you move on. It's all it's all the most important stuff in the world to me. That's embarrassing. No, it's not embarrassing. It's awesome. I love it. Do you have any <laughs> advice to aspiring authors, particularly because you said in the beginning that you just have drawers and drawers of these manuscripts and you've written so many novels and that you decided to that you finally write a one that was good enough. Tell me about that journey and why you didn't give up. Like, what's, what's your advice on not giving up there? Uh, my advice on not giving up Boy, I don't know, because it's, you have to really want to do it because it's a really, really hard job and a really, really hard process. My best advice to aspiring writers is if you are going to try to go publish something, if you are going to go aspire to put it out into the world, make it as good as you can possibly make it before you send it to anybody. Like I see so many 
young or, or older but aspiring writers who write a draft and maybe they edit it and then they go, well, yeah, this is good. I'm like, no, compare it to Goldfinch, compare it to Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, compare it to Dan Brown, compare it to pick, like compare it to J.K. Rowling, pick the biggest stuff you see on the shelves and honestly look at your work and compare it to the work that's out there and force yourself to get it as close to that as you possibly can. And I hate to tell you that means like a hundred drafts, not like two. <laughs> good, good, good point. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. And and I just there are so when particularly when you get into the business, there are so many books out there. Oh, it's daunting. So you might as well aim for the planets. You know, there's a famous quote online, and it's attributed to Michelangelo. I haven't found the actual primary source, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. The problem for most of us isn't aiming too high and missing our mark. It's aiming too low and hitting it. And that's the that's the truth. Aim high, even if you miss it, I think you'll hit something more worth putting out into the world. And we need new stories and new art out in the world right now because we need to all unify and find hope and move toward bending the world toward some sort of beauty instead of where we are right now. So- Preach. <laughs> Love it. I can't help right. it. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for coming on my show. Thanks for opening up. And I love talking to you. And send me those pictures if you ever get to Italy. <laughs> I will. Okay. Thank you so much for having me, Zimmy. And, and, for, and for making me comfortable enough to tell you a story I don't usually tell. I appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode from Thriller Thursday, part of my July book blast to get great authors into your hands while the summer is still going on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.